Hey friends, before we get to this week's episode, we have a couple of great things coming up this month at Redemption Hill that we want to share with you. All the details for these you can find on the website that's linked in the show notes. First, we have All Be Home for Christmas, a hand-spun, homemade family Christmas show. This will be December 22nd at the Basque Center downtown at 6 p.m. This event is sponsored by Boise Turnkey Real Estate, and all the proceeds will go to support Leap Housing. You can bring your whole family and you can RSVP at the Facebook event, also linked in the show notes. This year, we'll be doing two Christmas Eve services in conjunction with Discovery Church. Those will take place at 3.30 p.m. and 5 p.m. on Christmas Eve. We hope to see you there. Now, enjoy today's episode. Hey everybody, thanks for listening to the Redemption Hill podcast. We are a community of people learning the way of Jesus to bless our city of Boise, Idaho and beyond. Redemption Hill is a unique place. We are a collective of micro churches that do life together throughout the week and gather on Sundays to grow, worship and celebrate what God is doing in our city. You are invited to join us Sundays at 10.30 a.m. in the Boise Friends Church Gymnasium, where you can find the community you need in any season of your life. More details can be found at redemptionboise.org. Up next is the teaching segment from this week's Sunday Gathering. Afterwards, stay tuned for more information on how to get connected at Redemption. All right. We have started and this is a this is a very short series that we we may expand to during advent but um, we have been in our series we're calling xenophilia which in uh koine greek is hospitality is how we've translated it but it fundamentally means the love of the xenos which is the other the stranger the immigrant or even the resident alien um it can mean alien um and I, I know that I've had lots of conversations, probably more conversations about this sermon series than I think any we've ever had, because I think that it's striking a lot of you as an important set of questions, and also it's deeply personal. Um, what hospitality looks like is not something that happens out there. It happens inside of me and in our community. We're figuring out what does it look like. We are becoming a peculiar kind of people. And that's even among Western Christians. What we're trying to do is we're going to embrace the good news of God who created a place for us to belong, and then we're going to offer it to others as well. That's what the work of hospitality is all about, is not just accepting God's hospitality, but being a conduit for God's hospitality to the world. Last week, Jesse uh, did a great job. She dove into the the cost and the power of hospitality. If you didn't get to listen to her sermon, you should go listen to it. Or um, you can also go, Alyssa does an Instagram uh, live conversation every, like during the week. And if you, if you go watch it, it's, it's always like a, a deeper take, get a little more time in the, in the passage. This is what she said last week. Whenever we offer hospitality, we're acting out the gospel story in small and significant ways over and over again. Hospitality certainly has a cost, our finances, our time, our emotional energy, but what does that cost buy? It buys the comfort and the care of others. 
We make room for neighbors, friends, and strangers because God made room for us. I loved how she, he, she really made the case that hospitality is not just an optional thing. It's not a choice that we have as God's people. It's central to who we are as God's people. We remember and we reenact the gospel whenever we offer hospitality to others. So it's not just important for the person we're offering hospitality to. It's just not, not just important for their needs, but it helps us remember that we have a place in our Father's home when we offer it to others. And that's why we started Redemption Hill five years ago. We see all that we do as acts of hospitality, creating space and safety and sustenance for others to experience God's provision and his presence. This is why we exist as a community. It's everything that we do flows through that lens. It's, it's why we are a network of microchurches is because it's easier to be hospitable in smaller groups than it is in larger groups. We think that the microchurch is the perfect size to create hospitality inside of homes that people can participate in. And today we're going to take a little bit of a shift and then we're going to settle in on one of the most important passages in the Bible about hospitality and also one of the most difficult passages in the Bible. So fashion your seatbelts. Here we go. Okay, we're going to talk about first justification, which um, I don't know. Like it's it's a let's see one two three four five seven eight until like fourteen letter word. Okay, so it's it's a significant word justification, um, and I do uh, design for my 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 other part of my work, and in that in that work, justification means something is put in its right place. So when you justify a document, you put things either to the right, left, or the center. Now, when we're talking about justification in biblical terms and in theological terms, we're actually talking about exactly the same thing. Justifying something is setting it in its right place, where it belongs. And the New Testament is all about what it means to be God's people and how to deal with the problem of sin that we have that alienates us from God from one another, and from creation. This is the work of justification, is to figure out how God is going to set all things right, both in me and in the world around me. But here's the thing. It's really been misunderstood. People have been thinking about justification wrong for almost probably 2,000 years in many ways. Um, We've been thinking about it as how can I get saved? Justification is about me being justified, being set right before God so that I can participate and I can get salvation from the sin and the death and the, all of the destruction that sin causes in this world. That's been kind of the mindset is I've got to, if I'm going to get justified, that's what it takes. But that's not what justification is about. It's about God setting all of creation the way that it was meant to be. And the invitation for us to receive salvation is to join in with his project of justification, of setting all things right. Us being the kind of people who would belong in his kingdom. Us receiving from him what we need to become the people who belong in his kingdom. It's not just about getting salvation, it's about becoming people who belong to him. Um, it's kind of like 
salvation is getting a job. Like, like you, you, you are hired by a company, and then afterwards they give you a handbook and say, this is what is expected of you. But what it looks like to be justified before God is to say, I want all that has to do with your kingdom, and I want everything to do with what you're doing, and so I'm going to enter in and be shaped by your family way, by your kingdom. It's kind of like uh, after you get married, and then you find out how much housework your spouse expects of you. Has anybody had like a disconnect between what they thought marriage would be versus what the reality of it is? Um, this is this is what it's like. It's it's not about getting married. Getting married is just this declaration in front of people that I belong to that person and they belong to me, and we've made this covenant, this legal covenant between me and them and between God that I will do these things for them. But that's not what marriage is. Marriage is a daily act of belonging to one another, being beheld by one another. This is how Paul describes it in Philippians chapter 3. He says, And we become one in him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law, but rather I become righteous through faith in Christ, for God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. Now, this was a, an enormous revelation in the Middle Ages and an enormous revelation in the first century when the, the Jewish people in the first century and the Catholics in the 15th century realized that what Paul is talking about is that we get our righteousness from God, not we get our righteousness from obeying God. Okay, we get our righteousness imputed to us. It is given to us as a gift. It's set inside of us because of the work of Jesus on the cross. And when we put our faith in his work of atonement as payment for our sin, we are counted, declared as righteous. It's a courtroom metaphor that says, even though I was guilty, someone else takes the blame. Jesus is declared guilty and you are declared innocent. This is what happens. But... There's this declaration, and then there's the reality of living as somebody who's been imputed with Christ's righteousness. Now, now let me say this. this is, uh, there's going to be a lot of kind of uh, introduction today, but it's really important. A few caveats before we go any further. We believe that faith alone in the work of Christ on our behalf is the only path to union with Christ and the new covenant with God in his blood. Okay? We believe that it is only by trusting in Christ's work that makes us righteous before God. There's nothing we can do to attain righteousness before God because of our obedience of him or because of our good works. Okay, Everybody clear on that? Do I need to go any further? This is, this is basics of Protestantism. It's 500 years old. Okay, It's not about adherence to religion. It's not about self-righteousness. It's not about Jewish kosher laws or the Jewish covenant of circumcision. Salvation comes through faith alone. So the question is, what is faith? The work of justification being set right and sanctification are the same work. We are justified by our union with Christ we become one with him, and his righteousness literally covers over us. It becomes who we are. And it, we join in this new covenant of faith rather than circumcision, rather than of works and adherence to the law. We join in with the new covenant through union with Christ. And we take on the family name by putting our faith in Jesus. So it's not just in, in a courtroom, you have different kinds of things happen in a courtroom. One is there's guilt and innocence, there's criminal law. And then there's family law. 
And what we should see is two separate court scenes happening simultaneously, which doesn't happen in our court system. But standing before a judge, we are declared righteous by Christ's work. He is declared guilty by our work. And then immediately, the father stands up and he signs papers adopting us into his family. Okay? So we're not just gaining righteousness, we're gaining a place to belong with God. And that's, that's the whole purpose of it. It's not to save you from your sins, it's not to make you righteous, it's to make you so that you can belong in God's presence and you can experience his holiness and you can enjoy the way that he went things to be, setting all things right. And we take on this family name and then our obedience to Jesus or our non-obedience to Jesus is where you see if we have the faith to believe, okay? So everything we do once we have put our faith in Jesus declares to the world what we truly believe. It is the eating of the pudding where the proof is or the proof of the pudding is in the eating. You know you have faith. You know you belong in God's family because of how you live. Uh, We are rolling straight into World Cup season, so get ready for a month of World Cup um, analogies and soccer analogies in particular. Um, Someone's a great soccer player because they are a great soccer player, not because they wear a Liverpool jersey, okay? This is the difference between a thin view of sanctification and justification and a thick view of justification and sanctification. If you just put on the jersey and say, I'm on God's team, does that make you an elite soccer player? Does that make you a follower of Jesus? If you've been paying attention, the answer is, heck no. (laughs) Look at our world and about, you know, it's like 40% of Americans call themselves followers of Jesus. It's clear that's not true. It's, It's doubly clear it's not true when we pay attention. But when someone follows in the way of Jesus and lives out what he's called us to, it's evident to everyone. Everyone around them experiences the goodness of God. And there is no question whether they have faith or who they belong to. This is how, how one theologian put it. He said, justification is the pre- in the present is based on God's past accomplishment in the Messiah and, test- and anticipates the future verdict this present justification has exactly the same pattern. So our justification in the past was through Christ's work on the cross. We're anticipating the future where we, in our final judgment, will be declared righteous because of Jesus' work. And in the present, justification is doing that work in us, where we are becoming the people who belong to God. It's the now but not yet of God's kingdom. We have been declared righteous because of Christ's work, but it won't be fulfilled in its entirety until the parousia, the coming of Christ. And right now, we're we're literally becoming people who belong in God's kingdom day in and day out as we are shaped in the way of Jesus. Okay, so all of that to say, we're going to jump into Matthew 25, (laughs) the most difficult passage in the world. You ready? Here we go. We got 22 minutes. I'm going to get done on time. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory... Okay, this is the parousia, the coming of the king. And all the angels with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered in his presence, and he will separate the people as a sheep, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left hand. 
You guys are really going to regret sitting on this side today. (laughs) Then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you fed me. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me into your home. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you cared for me. I was in prison, and you visited me. And then these righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or or thirsty and give you something to drink or a stranger and show you hospitality or I didn't I certainly didn't see you naked Lord <laughs> and, and give you clothing when when did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you and the king will say I tell you the truth when you did it to one of the least of my brothers and sisters you were doing it to me and then the king is going to turn to those on his left and say away with you you cursed ones into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. For I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty and you didn't give me a drink. I was a stranger and you didn't invite me into your home. I was naked and you didn't give me clothing. I was sick and in prison and you didn't visit me. And then they're going to reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and not help you? And he'll answer, I tell you the truth. When you refuse to help the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you are refusing to help me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Pause for effect. Um, (laughs) this, This is tough. It's tough reading. We've all probably heard this. We've all probably read it. We've all probably tried to ignore it. But it's sitting right there in front of us. This is, you've got to give it a little bit of context. It's, it's not going to relieve you. The context is Jesus is predicting his kingdom coming. He's just cleared the temple of the money changers and then gave a four-page long set of teachings directly challenging the worthless Pharisees and all of the evil lies that they were telling the Israelites, okay? And then he, he ends it with this passage where he is telling them, it's not even a parable. Like, this is, this is a prophecy, not a parable. This is a prophecy of saying, this is what is about to happen when the kingdom comes in power. And what's going to happen is y'all are going to be sifted. You're going to be put through a sifter. And the king, the righteous king who judges all things is going to see through all of your, I want to say the word, just bull crap, okay? I, just, I want to say it is, it's bullshit. That's what it is. That's what it is. He's going to see through all of your nonsense He's going to see through all of the masks that you put on. He's going to see through all of the posturing and pretending that you feel and that you're projecting out into the world. And he's going to say, let's get real. This is what's really happening. He calls them out. Calls them blind guides. In Matthew 23, just just to look back, he says, What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you were careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the most important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. 
You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the most important things, you blind guides. You strain your water so you won't accidentally swallow a gnat, but you swallow a camel instead. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but the inside, you're filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind, man, he just keeps going. You blind Pharisee, you wash the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will become clean too. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs. Beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. Outwardly, you look like righteous people, but inwardly, your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees? Hypocrites, for you build tombs for the prophets your ancestors killed. You build tombs for the prophets that your ancestors killed. You decorate the monuments of the godly people your ancestors destroyed. And then you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would have never joined them in killing the prophets. But in saying that, you testify against yourselves that you are indeed the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Jesus is he's just going after them, man. Go ahead, finish what your ancestors started, you snakes, sons of vipers. How will you escape the judgment of God? Jesus is saying, just kill me. Just, just do it. You know you want to. Therefore, I'm sending you prophets and wise men and teachers of religious law, but you'll kill some by crucifixion. You'll flog others with whips in your synagogues, chasing them from city to city. As a result, you'll be held responsible for the murder of all godly people of all time, from the murder of righteous Abel to the murder of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you killed in the temple between the sanctuary and the altar. I tell you the truth, this judgment will fall on this very generation. Jesus is wanting them to make sure that they don't miss out, that there's a real judgment coming. And that judgment is a part of how God is setting all things right. Because until those who are committed to the destruction of all creation are set aside and set outside of the kingdom, the kingdom itself cannot experiencing the flourishing presence of God's true holiness. This is why there must be judgment, is because some people are always going to be on the side of the devil and his demons. In Matthew 25, what we just read, it says, you're going to go to the place that was prepared for the devil and his demons. It wasn't actually prepared for us. Hell was not made for you and for me. The outer darkness was not made for us. We were made to be eternal creatures that enjoyed God's presence forever. We are made to be one with God in union with Christ before our Father in heaven. And all those who will choose to be cast off into the outer darkness and to be with those for whom that place was prepared are going to choose it because they're goats and not sheep. He's making sure that they don't miss the judgment that's coming. So what's happening in this parable, in this story, in this prophecy? Well, first of all, we see that this is a shepherd king. We, the, the author, Jesus, doesn't want us to forget that Jesus is, the, the, the son of man is the shepherd king. And that he has a loving care for the herd in front of him. 
and that he knows how to righteously judge all things. And so there will be no injustice. Injustice is when things are set astray. Things are set wrongly. There will only be justice because he is a good shepherd who can see and understand who are his sheep and who is not. And it takes a, a very skilled sheep to separate the sheep from the goats. Who has ever been in a sheep herd? <laughs> I've, like a couple of times, have you, like I drove, you can drive up Eagle Road all the way to the top of Horseshoe Bend Hill. I think there's just like a little road and there's like a bunch of shepherds and, you know, cow herds out there. And I, you just, like I was driving along one time, I was going up to the top and I got stuck in a, in a herd of sheep, several hundred of them. And sometimes when you go up to Sun Valley, you'll see these Basque sheep herding families with like their massive, massive uh, herds. But I don't know about you, I can't tell the difference between the sheep and what, um, to give you a little sense, it's sheep and goats. It was like the word that was used for goats is the same that's used for rams in several places. And so it was probably like this male-female split or it was sheep and goats and they, they have different utility. But I don't know about you, but when I look at a sea of silky white wool, I cannot tell what is good and what's bad. I don't know because I'm not a shepherd. But the good shepherd knows. He can see. And he wants sheep rather than goats in particular because... Sheep are fruitful. Sheep produce something useful to us, two things in particular. They produce milk. It's a vital protein in the ancient world, just like it is today. They also provide the sustenance or the, the clothing that will care for us, the, the coverings that will provide for us in, in, in a world where we're exposed. And so uh, this, is, this is what the National Geographic said. It was... I was trying to figure out what's, what's the real difference between sheep and goats. Here's what, when it comes to barnyard animals, goats might be the weirdest. Unlike sheep, which are content to stay with their herd, goats are naturally curious and independent, often getting into mischief as a result. Um, a, a sheep expert, a sheep and goat expert, I don't know how you get that job, her name is Susan Shonen, explained that all of the livestock she's worked with, goats exhibit the oddest behavior, even getting them to stay in pens, proves surprisingly challenging. This is what we need to understand. Sheep stay with the shepherd. Goats go astray. This is the fundamental difference between sheep and goats, then and now. The fulfillment of the gospel, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and become one who belongs to the shepherd king. Become a sheep who belongs in his presence, who listens to him, who serves him, who is transformed by his leadership in your life. This is the only choice, truly the only choice in all of our life is this choice. Do we do what is right and follow God, or do we do what is wrong and follow our own way? Are we going to be a sheep who belongs, or a goat that's independent and off on our own? Uh, there is no middle ground between the sheep and the goats. Saved and lost. Are you going to be a part of this blessed group or are you going to be a part of the group that's choosing to be cast off? Uh, when the king says, depart from me, this is, this is the center of, of 
of all of the universe and hospitality is God opens up his household to anybody who will come and those who will join in with his family will have a place forever belonging to him. And those who try to destroy his household by doing their own thing, they will lose their place in God's presence by their choice. Let's keep going. I got nine minutes. I got my timer going. We're good today. Um, okay, so let's move on. We've got this picture of sheep and goats, God's justification of all creation, and those who are sheep don't even know that they're sheep. And that's probably the most surprising part of the story is that those who belong don't know that they belong. They don't know that they belong because they thought they had been told by the Pharisees that belonging looked like adherence to the law. It looked like religious nonsense. It looked like, um, it looked like ritual. It looked like people, people looking good and doing the right things. Tithing their mint and tithing their cumin. This is what the Pharisees had sold them, this massive lie about what it looks like to be God's people. And all of a sudden, Jesus is making sure that none of us are going to miss that the things that God cares about are not the things that we care about. Jesus is calling out the Pharisees because they have not done a good job of stewarding the knowledge and the culture and the gifts that God had given them. God had given them the law, which had clearly laid out this demand that they give away hospitality to widows, orphans, and strangers, to alien residents who live among them. This was what was taught to them from the very beginning. And instead, they ignored that and said, it's about tithing cumin and mint. And we have our own ways that we've obfuscated God's call in our lives. Like we said two weeks ago, the hospitality of God's kingdom is the essential fabric of the universe. Even when we're enemies of God, destroying his land, a threat to him and his family, God still prepares a place for us in his home and calls all of creation to come belong with him. There is a place for you here. And if you'll set down your sword and stop making war with the king, you can be a part of his household. He's saying, I will protect you. I will provide for you. I will even offer you my loving kindness as a part of my family. And then even when we reject that enormous offer of belonging in God's family, he sends out his son, his beloved, one and only son, the flesh of his flesh, the bone of his bones, and the son shares this invitation to the world and says, I will die in your place for all the destruction that you have caused to my father and to the world, his land. And then he stands there wondering and waiting and hoping that we're going to take up the hospitality to join in his household, to make our home with him, just like he had come and pitched his tent among us. So there's kind of two invitations. The first is an invitation of repentance. This is the gospel that Jesus preached. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is making its way in this world. Leave behind your war-making with God and join his household and his family. This is just the beginning when we receive the righteousness of God and we give away our brokenness, and place it in Christ. But then comes this second invitation that many of us miss because we are so focused on belonging in God's family through his work that we forgot that we still had to become people who belonged in his family. 
Israel tried to accept the hospitality of God when he made a place in Canaan for them. But then they, they shut the drawbridge behind him and said, no room for anybody else. It's all full. And then they worked a thousand years to preserve their land with the sword and with power and with money rather than create a home for the lost and the broken in the world around them. And this is why God removed the land from them. This is why they were thrown into exile twice. This is why the northern kingdom ceased to exist. This is why Jerusalem was taken from them in 70 AD and will not be returned until Christ returns again. Jesus is warning them and he's warning us that it's so easy to be deceived about what it means to be a part of God's family. It's not just receiving his hospitality, but it's becoming a part of his work of hospitality in the world. We have to get it right. Here's the formula from this passage. If you say you belong to God and don't offer works of mercy and hospitality, you are a liar and Christ is not in you. That's it. It doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter if you believe all the right things and you've read the whole Bible and you will put your hand on it and say, I swear I believe everything in here is true. That's not the badge of belonging to God's family. To belong to God's family is to be people who are marked by mercy and hospitality. And then the opposite's also true. If you offer works of mercy and hospitality, but you aren't sure if you belong in God's family, Christ is probably in you. You're someone who will belong in God's family and in God's kingdom because you have taken on the badge and the markings and the family name of belonging with him. It's not the work that delivers you. It's the badge of belonging to God. You believe what you believe, but your actions, how you live, is a perfect representation of what you believe. Your actions are a perfect representation of what you believe and who you put your faith in. Take a moment. Take a little inventory. What does your life say about what you believe? What does your life say about what you worship? And so if you have said, I'm with the Father and I've put my faith in Jesus, but you sin ongoing without repentance and you don't grow in the way of Jesus, well, you believe fundamentally that you are God and that you can do whatever you want. And those who believe that they're God and believe that they can do whatever they want, i got bad news for you. Those are goats. Those are people who don't belong in God's family. And so when we talk about radical autonomy and self-definition and the independence that marks our people as this deep evil in our culture, we're not talking about something that would be a nice thing to change. We're talking about the very center of what it means to be with God is to set aside our right to determine our future, our right to determine what my life will look like. Hospitality is the badge of belonging to God's family, giving away hospitality. It's kind of like this. Guests can hang out in your family. So if you have a meal and you have guests over, do you let them do dishes? Not normally, unless they're really insistent. But if you're at my house and you enjoy a meal and you've been there before, you're now a part of the family. You're going to be doing the dishes with me. 
Because guests don't help. Guests don't participate in the work of the family. Family participates in the work of the family. And so you can accept the hospitality of God and in the end miss out on the presence of God if you don't become people who live the mark of hospitality in your lives. This isn't like a two-stage salvation. We're not talking about earning your salvation through the work of hospitality. What we're saying is that people who have been transformed by the hospitality of God become people who give it away. And all of us probably grew up believing that if we had the right theology and we said the right formulation of words, God would have to let us into heaven. And the answer is that's fundamentally untrue. The thing that will get you into heaven is the grace of God that overwhelms you and transforms you and your submission to it. Saying, I want everything you have for me, God. Are we going to be perfect? No. Are we going to be people who um, sometimes look like our family and sometimes don't? Yeah. Are we going to be people who always offer hospitality? No. But the question is, are we the people who are saying, I want everything God has, and if he wants to transform me, I'm going to let him do it, and I'm going to work towards the thing he's called me to. I want to, I want to be good at my family business, you know? I don't want to be Fredo. It's a little, <laughs> little Godfather reference. I want, to, I, want to be, I want to be the family member who is good at the family business and who gets to be a part of what God's doing. Why is this so important to God? It's the projects of salvation and reconciliation to set all things right, to bring justice and judgment to the world. It's not actually justice if nothing changes, okay? It's not justice if nothing changes. And we've bought into some sort of a lie that God is bringing a gospel to us that won't bring about the kingdom of God in our world. God is setting things right by setting us right. The world is experiencing God's kingdom because we're being transformed in the way of Jesus. This is what um, Paul calls a sign and a foretaste of God's kingdom. He's making an appeal through our lives by setting things right in us. And when people see God setting things right through people, they have hope. When the world out there sees you become somebody who offers an unbelievable amount of hospitality to a lost and broken world, they're going to look and say there's hope for justice. There's hope for restoration. There's hope for healing. The future of our world depends on us getting this right. Because we, we cause all the pain and the brokenness in this world. Our selfishness, our greed, our corruption, our disease, our war, our famine, climate change, anger, jealousy, all of it is us being broken and separated from God. And the only path forward is a, into a different future is to be transformed into God's kind of people. And he wants to start by us offering hospitality to those who suffer the worst in our world. It's always been the most vulnerable, vulnerable people who didn't belong, who don't have wealth, who don't have security, who don't have home. The naked, the poor, the widow, the orphan, those in prison. We need to see them. We need to see in them our own hopelessness. We need proximity to those who are struggling to remember God's deep generosity and hospitality towards us. 
We need to look at the brokenness of the world around us and train our brains to pay attention to poverty, to notice it, to alleviate some of the pain with those that we come in conflict with. And if we aren't willing to join God in this work, we have to repent and change the way that we see these things. Our world, there's a narrative in our world that tells us that the poor and needy deserve it. There's a false religion in every country in the world that has some sort of cosmic justice that says the poor and the needy, they deserve it because of their lack of moral standing. They're lazy. They have bad families. And if they would just do the right thing, then they wouldn't be poor and they wouldn't be needy and they wouldn't make me feel bad for them being poor and needy. So if you feel compassion, if you don't feel compassion and you aren't moved by the poor and the needy, repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you, dis- if you despise the weak and side with the powerful, repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you focus on a religion of rules and useless piety but forget the weightier things of the law, repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's time to repent. If you don't repent... When the final judgment comes, you will find yourself homeless in a dark place, alone, probably naked and probably hungry, just like those that you left out in the cold and the hungry. Matthew 25 kind of stinks, doesn't it? (laughs) As a community... We have to get better at this. Because God's going to look at our little community and say, you didn't belong if we're not the kind of people who live out the hospitality of the kingdom. We need more proximity to the poor, to those in, in significant need. We need to take steps to disadvantage ourselves for the sake of others by giving up things that bring us pleasure to be able to give away things that bring life to others. And we need to learn to give selflessly and sacrificially to those in need around us. It's not, not fun, but it's also the thing that will transform everything around us. There's some clear ways that we can, that we can help people around us, okay? Um, and, I, and I think you got to do something. You probably are feeling a need to just like stretch your legs and figure out a way to do some hospitality. It, it doesn't have to be the most flashy or like amazing thing. It's just a matter of starting, okay? So here's a few ideas. Write down whatever strikes you. You can volunteer. We have a community pantry about a mile away from here that we support. Um, they fill up food baskets four days a week in the afternoon and they hand it out to people in need, 300 families right in our neighborhood. So it's a clear way. Um, you can rent out or give out your rooms to people in need. Like our, our city doesn't have enough rooms in it. Actually, it has plenty of rooms. They're allocated to us, and we have too many rooms, and other people don't have any rooms. And so some of your rooms are meant for people who don't have rooms. 
And so you can take that room and you can either rent it out for some amount of money or give it away to people because they need a home. That's hard to hear, but even doing it for anybody alleviates the housing crisis in our city. It's a simple way. Um, actually, we, I have a little thing. There's a website that we're helping develop. Is it there? It's called houseyourneighbor.org. You can write that down, houseyourneighbor.org. There it is, houseyourneighbor.org. And on there are different ways that we can participate in helping create housing for people in need in our community. Um, you can befriend refugees who move here um, as a part of one of our favorite groups, Glocal. Um, you can advocate for change in our housing and zoning laws so that people can create housing that is affordable in our city. You can offer employment for the refugees that are coming in our city. We're going to settle about 900 refugees in Boise this year. You can take your wealth and you can invest it in missional projects to create stable, stable housing for the chronically homeless. You can co-sign a rental for a refugee family. You can give cash assistance for housing needs through CATCH or for, through Jesse Tree or Idaho Office of Refugees. You can invite people around you to join you for meals. You can make sure that people have places to stay when you see people who are struggling. There are 4,000 homeless children in our school systems in the Treasure Valley who are couch surfing right now. 4,000 kids who don't have a stable place to live. When opportunities arise, we can take the opportunity, we can notice their need, and we can do for the one what you wish you could do for the many. Because we don't act because 4,000 homeless kids feels like too many. But you know what you could do? You could probably do something for one of them. Do for the one what you wish you could do for the many because you're responsible for the people that God puts in front of you. Lastly, um, we're, we're having our Christmas program next month on December 22nd at the Bass Center. And it's going to be this, like, variety show. It's going to be really fun, but it's going to be a night where we're inviting our friends to come and give money to our partnership with Leap Housing, and they're going to provide long-term affordable housing for people with that money. And so I want to challenge you to come. I want to challenge you to give, and I want to challenge you to bring your rich friends who will give their money too, okay? They, they're wasting their money on themselves anyways, okay? It's serious. God's, God wants to take their money and use it for something good. So get your friends there. Um, Doing these things, some of us are going to entertain the Son of Man. Angels who are among us. May we be a community with lots of sheep who will hear from our righteous judge on that last day. Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world because I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, you invited me into your home. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you cared for me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Let's have the band come up, and we'll end in a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, may we be kingdom people. May we be people who look so much like you because of our generosity and our hospitality and our openness to the kingdom's way and the kingdom's work that there will be no mistake in that end day. Lord God, we each have these strongholds in our heart that are holding us back, fear that's holding us back, selfishness that's holding us back. 
Lord God, we haven't experienced the reality of your hospitality and your care for us enough. So we pray, we pray God, that your spirit would bring clarity to our minds. Would let us see who we truly are and not miss out on that last day because we were self-deceived, thinking that we had taken on your family name when in reality we've just been guests in your household. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening. Make sure to subscribe to get the weekly episodes in your podcast feed. You can find out more on how to get connected with Redemption Hill at redemptionboise.org slash connection, where you can fill out the Connect card and start your journey today. For regular encouragement throughout the week, follow us on Instagram at Redemption Boise. We are so glad you're here and are excited to accompany you in your story with God. We hope to see you soon.